morning and welcome to Rising. Uh, thank you for joining us. We have a really great show for you today. Uh, we've been down to the wire, kind of compiling new information. There are a lot of developments breaking actually like right now in real time. So we're you know, scrambling to understand what the state of things is, especially with respect to this explosion at the hospital. So we do have some new reporting on that. Take it away, Brianna. Yeah, so let's parse what we know and what we don't know. President Biden touched down in Tel Aviv yesterday, marking one of the most significant overseas visits of his presidency thus far. Looming over the president's steadfast show of support for Israel, however, is Tuesday's explosion at a Gaza area hospital. The Gaza Health Ministry has claimed the blast killed as many as 500 civilians, and Palestinian officials have blamed an Israeli airstrike for the carnage. Israeli forces, on the other hand, are laying the blame on a misfired rocket on the Palestinian side. And this just in, Two senior U.S. officials say the U.S. has an independent assessment that it was a Palestinian Islamic Jihad group rocket that misfired and hit the hospital in Gaza, NBC News reports. Now, President Biden lent support to this explanation, making this comment while appearing with Bibi Netanyahu last night. I was deeply saddened and outraged by the uh, explosion at the hospital in Gaza yesterday. And based on what I've seen, it appears as though it was done by the other team, not, not you. But there's a lot of people out there not sure. So we've got, a lot, we've got to overcome a lot of things. The IDF has released an audio recording that purports to depict Islamic Jihad terrorists actively realizing that one of their own missiles had hit the Palestinian hospital. We will note this recording and its contents have not been independently verified by U.S. media. <laughs> What we do know about this tragedy is that questions over who caused it are proving diplomatically disastrous for President Biden's trip to Israel. Haaretz's Ben Samuels notes that before the commander-in-chief even left Washington, Palestinian President Abbas canceled his meeting with Biden, and Jordan followed suit by canceling its summit with Egypt's leader Sisi. So the so you know this is all developing in real time. We're, you know, we're learning more information. There's a lot of video footage and photos on social media, and it is difficult to independently vet and verify all of them. Yeah. Um, you know, I would say, at, at the state we're in, we're now seeing photos in daylight of, of the situation there. Um, it, it looks like the parking lot uh, was what was primarily hit. Um, the buildings themselves were not, were not leveled, are still standing. Um, the, the statistic on how many deaths there were, those up to 500 casualties, that comes from the Palestinian Health Authority. It has not been and was never independently verified by any of the U.S. news agencies. The New York Times stories about it always you know, led with those claims, but then sourced them only to that organization. So it is, I would say at this time, it is, it's just impossible to know how many, if casualties there were, if there were casualties. Um, but U.S. intelligence is now saying it was Wait, misfired. It's not if there were casualties. We One of the most gripping um, images from this disaster was a press conference that was given outside of the hospital in the aftermath, in which the pan-out zoom of the hospital staff that were speaking showed a slow reveal of bodies in, in the surround covered with 
bloody sheets. And to the extent that there might be skepticism about what's under the sheets, there were two men that were holding bodies visibly, one holding a baby that was dead in front of the podium and another holding a young child um, adjacent to him. So there definitely are casualties. And I haven't seen any dispute of the number of casualties, although, of course, anything can change and settle over um, the course of the day. I think the real dispute is who is responsible for those casualties. I mean, there there is a dispute over the ca I mean, there's only one source for the casualties. So we just don't know. We have no idea. There's nothing to say about yeah. it. I, I, mean, oh, oh, I guess maybe phrase it differently. I haven't seen anybody meaningfully contest the number of casualties as in the same way that they're contesting. There's a bit, the roiling debate right now is about who caused the explosion, who fired the missile. Well, sure, and and over the extent of the damage, it was. It sounded like the building itself had been leveled, which of course would have an extraordinary number of casualties. But now we're mostly seeing photos of the parking lot being hit. That's um, so interesting because to me, as I was following this last night, the building being leveled or not leveled was nowhere in my mindscape of having any relevance or any relationship to the number of people that were killed. I don't, I didn't, the narrative wasn't the building was leveled and therefore 500 people died. It was an explosion went off and there was video of the explosion and that health officials on the ground were counting bodies and that 500, an estimated 500 people right. were, were dead. It does seem that given the pictures in the daylight, seeing that the blast was concentrated in the parking lot, does seem to suggest that there were a lot of people in the parking lot or it all of course could be one big well, right, and also the, the parking post? lot being well, the parking lot being hit makes it more likely if that was the center of the uh, of the target makes it more likely it was inadvertent, it was an accident, it was uh, which you know led lends support to again what our independent what U.S. intelligence is right now confirming. Now U.S. intelligence can be wrong. Again, we're just we're reporting what is being alleged by various people, but our report now that NBC confirmed is that this was not Hamas, but the other. Um, uh, uh, terrorist group on the Palestinian side, one of their rockets um, uh, wrongly and accidentally, inadvertently striking that hospital Yeah, so just to give area. a sense of the kind of evidence that people are looking at to try to determine what happened here, last night people were making all kinds of claims about whether the sound of the rocket gave any indication. People at various news outlets have said that they've shown it to missile uh, weapons experts who can't say anything really conclusively from all of the videos that got bandied around. But I do think that one of the most, one of the pieces of evidence, as it were, that caused people to have some skepticism about initial IDF reports that they were not responsible was the fact that there were a number of figures, namely this uh, person named Hanania Naftali, who apparently is a media advisor to Benjamin Netanyahu, who had immediately in the aftermath of the bombing tweeted out breaking, Israeli Air Force struck a Hamas terrorist base inside a hospital in Gaza. A number of—a multiple number of terrorists are dead. It's heartbreaking that Hamas is launching rockets from hospitals, mosques, schools, and using civilians as human shields. So his response was not only that Israel did it, but to immediately say it was justified because Hamas was hiding in the hospital, which, when he then took down that tweet and tweeted um, alternatively that it was Hamas, suggested to people that there was an effort of a, at a cover-up and a lie, perhaps because the number of casualties was higher than, in this in this view of things, higher than Israel maybe anticipated, and therefore they didn't want to take claim for it. And the proximity of this individual to Netanyahu, apparently Netanyahu was at his wedding, people read into that that this must be insider information and that there's a cover-up afoot. 
Right, and, and credulously and automatically believing statements from governments, government officials, be they Israel, be they our, be they our own government, be, be it any government, is never a good idea, and you always want to see what other reporters are saying, both mainstream and contrarian. You want to get a range of views so that, you know, the, uh, the truth can eventually emerge and you can judge all these things. So I would not have gone off that and automatically assumed what that IDF spokesperson said. Um, but, you know, again, on the other hand, the all the the— allegations to the contrary that Israel had done this and the, and the extent of the casualties and what had actually been targeted was all coming from one side. And you can't automatically believe that either. And look, if, if this continues to um, I, I would say right now, to my mind, you might disagree. It, 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 it looks more to me like it was what our intelligence officials are now saying, an accidental hit from the Palestinian side. Of course, we could learn new information that complicates that. Um, but if that is the case, I mean, there's a lot of—I mean, the New York Times had a—you know, led with—I um, got to pull it up, what, what, you know, saying the devastation at the hospital, and then had an image, a big image under it that actually—that is a building destroyed, but it wasn't an image of the hospital. And I think that would have misled, like, a lot of people. Let me see if I can pull that up again. Yeah, so we should note that that's another news item, um, that— the, the, the building that was shown in southern Gaza, there were these bombings by the IDF uh, in southern Gaza, including a bakery that provided a lot of food to people. This was scandalous in part because, of course, Israel has yeah. directed people to evacuate to southern uh, Gaza and have told people that they would be safe there. So to the, the extent that it is true that they are now bombing the area that they claim to be a safe zone and including targeting um, food stores for a population that's experiencing a hunger crisis, that is, that is also we, big news. Can we put this back on, on screen, what we just had there, please? Um, okay, we're going to pull it back up. I just I wanted to talk about this for a minute. The New York Times story image, can you pull that back up, please? Um, okay, they're working on, on getting that again. Um, uh, a lot of you know, reporting just being sourced to, um, uh, uh, again, to the to the Palestinian side of things, it's—okay, there it is. Yeah, Israel strike kills hundreds in hospital, Palestinians say. So they do attribute to the Palestinians. But that, that photo—I mean, this is very—I think this is very misleading. Like, that is not a photo of the hospital. The caption does uh, clarify the, the region it's in, but without say—I mean, you wouldn't necessarily know what region the hospital itself is in, unless you're paying, like, very close attention to the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been a, a, trouble, a troublesome thing happening with these headlines where— I think because at this point there have been about twice as many Palestinian casualties as there were in the initial October 7th uh, attack by Hamas on uh, Israel, that page after front page of photos of civilian casualties, there's an obvious desire to bring attention to a, humanity, a humanitarian crisis and show civilian ca casualties. But the major headline will say something about the Hamas attack on October 7th, and then the front page would show children hurt that were, in fact, Palestinian children. And either that, that would be indicated either in the small print, as is the case here, or not indicated at all. And so I do think this is a really challenging moment for newsrooms to figure out how to cover a catastrophe that is manifesting both on October 7th with the Israeli population and now for the next uh, subsequent 10 days very heavily on the Palestinian population and to draw attention to both those things, be able to talk about those things without grandfathering one side's tragedy into sympathies for 
a group that isn't being affected in the pictures. Yeah, I mean, you described um, the other day in our very intense debate about it, um, President Biden's claim that he had seen you know, the photos of the the beheaded babies as part of like a propagandistic lie to drum up support for for war, support for the pro-Israel, pro-U.S. side. Um, so if if the Palestinian authorities have, I think is looking increasingly likely, wrongly claimed um, that 500 deaths at a hospital were attributed to an Israeli deliberate strike, is that not an example of that same phenomenon? Well, sure. I mean, it also can be misinformation, um, people not understanding what happened in the wake of a tragedy in the middle of the night. But my concern was not the fact that a lie was circulating on the Internet, but that the president confirmed the lie and also said on a national stage at a podium that he had personally seen evidence corroborating the lie, which wasn't true. It was a lie on top of a lie. Now, someone like uh, some, there's several Congress members like Rashida Tlaib who tweeted out very passionately condemning this attack and, and characterizing it as it. an Israeli attack. And if that isn't true, they're going to have to walk that back and issue apologies um, in the same way. Well, Biden didn't exactly issue an apology. His administration issued a retraction. But they will have to face a lot of pushback uh, and eat a lot of crow, I think, on that, which in the same way that I think people who were making, trying to make this argument about the 40 beheaded babies stick did a disservice to the fact that, of course, real people were killed, and you could have just talked about those ones. People who perhaps got out over their skis with attributing this particular hospital bombing to Israel are similarly undermining the fact that Israel has a long history of, de of bombing dozens of hospitals yeah. and that the credibility when they talk about another hospital bombing is going to be shot through. This seems it's like also a much more extreme mistake, though. I mean, President Biden was shown photos, including of, like, I mean, we, we, later they showed the photos right, of 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 infant that was horribly burned and blown apart by fr from the violence. Not was not specifically shown, I don't think, um, that number of specifically beheaded children, but was shown the bodies of children mangled in this attack, um, that seems like less of a, of a wrong or an exaggeration than um, misattributing the destruction of the—to, like, which side actually did the thing. I don't agree, uh, but you're, you're welcome to that opinion. Okay. Another reason um, that I think that people were— so skeptical that this wasn't an Israeli attack was because Israel had repeatedly warned this uh, hospital to evacuate. Um, and the staff said, we can't. Obviously, we're one of the last resources for people. Obviously, we have a lot of sick and injured people that can't be moved. And at the press conference that I mentioned before, uh, where people were standing outside, hospital staff gave the gave their marks, they said again that they had been warned about an hour before the bombing that Israel had indicated a plan to bomb the hospital. So I, I'm, I'm interested to see how all of this shakes out. Um, it could be, if it's this third party that is neither Hamas nor IDF, a kind of good faith mistake where both sides know they didn't do it, and it was this third party. But there does seem to be a lot of information that's being put out and then retracted. Some people um, were very skeptical. Some people, some Arabic speakers were weighing in, saying that they felt like the video, that the, ID, the audio that we played from the IDF seemed to be um, almost like a cartoonish skit, like um, not Mm -hmm. Not stylistically, stylistically the kind of Arabic that you would expect um, from a, a native Palestinian uh, Arab, uh, Arabic speaker. 
So this is still very new. This is some, an explosion that didn't even happen 24 hours ago. I'm sure we're going to see a lot of vetting of this. And so I think that everyone should just yeah. sit tight and assess the evidence as it comes down the transom. Yeah. And again, I'll, I'll be, I'll be happy to learn that those casualty numbers were wrong, mostly because it's horrible, and I don't want uh, now uh, people are you know dying in other circumstances horrifically in this very unfortunate war. But um, I did that. My my only interest is hopefully in, in you know getting some good news that at least this terrible thing didn't happen. Always a good idea to just wait 24 hours in these kinds of war reporting scenarios and situations where it's very confusing and people make mistakes. I think it's very interesting who gets labeled a purveyor of misinformation. This never gets applied to institutions like the New York Times and mainstream reports when they are erroneous or just, or the government you know, of the United States of America. For sure, for sure. No, the government of the United States of America is the one funding the, the groups tracking who's supposedly doing uh, misinformation. Um, I suspect we are just beginning to demand some accountability on that front. We'll continue following this more rising right after this. Second time's the charm. After he lost the first floor vote in the speaker's race by 20 votes, House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan had this to say to reporters. We're going to keep going. I've had great conversations, great discussions with uh, our colleagues. And frankly, no one, no one in our conference wants to see any type of coalition government with Democrats. So we're going to keep working, and we're going to get to the votes. How many, uh, how many, how many ballots are you willing to go through? Until we get a speaker. we gotta, we got to have a speaker, and it can't be some deal with the Democrats. I, I mean, American people don't want that. They elect Republicans in a majority. Small majority, I get it. But we got 200 votes in the first ballot. I think that maybe even there's more than what Kevin got back in January. It was right about where Kevin was. Gus Villarrocas is a vote for us. That's 201. We've had good conversations. We're going to keep working. The 20 Jordan holdout Republicans met after he his, the vote failed, and per reporting in Punchbowl News, they plan to hold strong in their opposition to the Freedom Caucus leader. Meanwhile, on the other side of the aisle, Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, who Democrats nominated for Speaker, earned more votes than Jordan. Let's watch. The tellers agree in their tallies that the total number of votes cast is 432 of which the Honorable Jim Jordan of the state of Ohio has received 200 votes. The Honorable Hakeem Jeffries of the state of New York has received 212 votes. The next vote is scheduled for 11 a.m. this morning, right now, as we are taping. It's um, going on or about to happen. Um, so simple math there, all the Democrats voted for the Democrat, Hakeem Jeffries, Republicans overwhelmingly voted for Jim Jordan, but there's 20 holdouts. That's not enough. And so we're back in this situation with really no end in sight. And the question now becomes, um, does Jim Jordan withdraw once again in favor of someone else? But there's just, there's no consensus candidate. Um, the, uh, there, there are now, you know, there are people, the Matt Gates faction really wants Jordan. And I think the whole, the, many of the holdouts feel that like, if they let it be Jordan, they're, they're letting their, the people they don't like win. Like, it's a, it's a personal struggle now. Like, I, well, I can't let you win, so I just have to not vote for this person. Yeah, I also wonder if there's some squeamishness about Jim Jordan being so vocally supportive of Donald Trump's election-like claims um, at a time immediately after 1-6 when so many other Republicans actually were kind of timid about what was going to happen to the Republican Party in the wake of uh, the riot at the Capitol. So the fundamental issue here is that with a very, very closely— uh, um, a close— uh, 
Congress. It's almost impossible for anybody without a decision to have unanimity to win. And fundamentally, the very nature of these Freedom Caucus holdouts is that they are voting as a caucus, as a bloc separate and apart from the mainstream Republicans, and there will be no unanimity. So the idea that you can just keep reshuffling the chairs in the Titanic and find a person that is going to appeal to everybody except for these all it takes is four holdouts, as I think a little bit naive. At the end of the day, you're going to have to give these people something. Well, we do technically have an interim speaker. Mm -hmm. That is um, uh, uh, Patrick McHenry, uh, who was you know, selected by McCarthy to be the fill-in person if, if something ever went wrong and happened to McCarthy, which is exactly what did take place. So he now has these technical powers. Um, they are limited. There are some Republicans who want to empower him to effectively be a de facto speaker. Now, these people think this is necessary basically in order to, um, to send a, a giant aid package to Israel. Mm -hmm. Again, I would just remind everyone who thinks non-interventionism is important, who thinks spending American tax dollars at home rather than abroad is important. The dysfunction in the House actually helps <laughs> keep that <laughs> status quo or prevent the, uh, the spending from occurring. Is It's not you know, it's not actually terrible to have this dysfunction right now. In yeah. fact, I think it's good. Biden, Biden has said he'll ask Congress for about $10 billion for Israel. Yeah, yeah. So there are apparently Axios reported that there has been some back and forth. Uh, a senior House Democrat speaking on condition of anonymity said that there had been some conversation about the idea of voting to expand the interim speaker's powers. Um, they have been talking about ways to constrain his powers, to not say, okay, then Patrick McHenry is now just Speaker of the House and can do whatever Republicans want to do, perhaps only allowing bills to pass with a two-thirds majority, which guarantees there has to be some buy-in from Democrats. Um, but it's not clear it doesn't, it's not clear that that plan, that idea, ever went anywhere beyond yeah. this. And McHenry has said he has no interest in being the speaker, but yeah. again, because they don't have to take a vote on him, he's already in this interim position. Uh, that's a massive benefit. Um, so we're going to have to keep following this. We were going to have, uh, actually, Representative Matt Gates is slated to appear on our show. He was going to be on today, but had to participate in this vote. But we're looking forward to having him back um, at, a, at a later date to you know, get his take on everything that's going on. Yeah, I think there's been a shocking deficit of pointed questions about what it would take <clears throat> to get the holdout members of, these, uh, of the Freedom Caucus on board. That really is the only question. Yeah. And to the extent well, that Well, right now it's not holdout members of the Freedom Caucus, right? It's, 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 the Freedom Caucus is behind Jordan. It's holdout members sure. right on the other sure. side. The, the fundamental— Of the establishment. Fact. The fundamental um, argument that's being made by the establishment is that the Freedom Caucus, that Matt Gates is just, um, you know, mm -hmm. looking for attention, that he is trying to pursue his own political gain and doesn't care about the interests of the country at large and that this is all very performative. If you think that's true, then you should be asking very pointed questions and nailing him on what do you actually need to get on board with the rest of the Republicans. And I do think there's an unwillingness to do so, in part because Gates has been hitting on some really popular and populist ideas that it will be hard for Republicans to hear and to kind of elevate as the real sticking points in this issue, and then to decline to support. I, I do want to keep in focus that Gates initially pointed to things like wanting to have single-issue up-down votes, yeah. which are popular. And even some Democrats have said, some progressive Democrats said that they think would be valuable as well. And are the entire point of the chamber is <laughs> how it should just be structured, yeah. to have members of Congress proposing legislation 
discussing it, debating it, and then taking a vote on it. And then, of course, the issue of the war in Ukraine and funding yeah. it endlessly, which has now just gotten endlessly more complicated by messaging from the White House that says, and from Janet Yellen, who says, we can do both. We can afford two wars. I'm going to yeah. try to lump this $10 billion Israel package along with the Ukraine package and make people do that, do those two together, which, again, points to the value of having up-down votes if you are one of these people who would say support aid for Israel right. and not aid for Obviously, I've uh, seen Ukraine. there's a lot of people in the Democratic Party saying that we need to support both. Then there are also people in the, in the Republican Party. I, you know, I've seen the neoconservatives are uh, making the case that, you know, what's happening in Israel, we need to urgently support Israel, and that shows, you know, we must fight uh, we must support the good guys everywhere in the globe. It's just as urgently important to fund Israel as it is to fund Ukraine. My suspicion is these developments between Israel and Palestine, uh, Israel and Palestine will actually further deplete um, Republican base, Republican voter support for Ukraine in the Ukraine-Russia conflict, because you have some people who uh, take my position, don't want to, you know, spend money, give foreign aid to either country, then you're going to have some people who think Israel is important and we should do that. And given that this is going on, we can't spare the money for Ukraine. So I, I actually think the neoconservative position is going to be even less popular than it was before. Yeah. We'll find out. I, I do wonder if tying these together is going to have the opposite effect of what I think some establishment folks on both sides of the aisle want, which yeah. is to make people even less sympathetic yeah. or less... There are people who don't want to fund either, Israel. and then the, and there are some people who think Israel is special and should be treated special. Again, not saying that's my view, but that that is a view on the right. I think the view that America is responsible for defending injustice or supporting governments that are aligned with us or you know are, are we think are in the right all over the globe everywhere. That's the job of the American taxpayer to bankroll their security efforts. I don't think that's going to be, I don't think that's a very popular position on the right. It's much less popular than Republican elites think it is, which they get reminded of every couple of years when something, something happens or there, there's an actual, you know, discernible backlash among the voters or a, a, a figure emerges who, who takes on that assumption and, and, and attacks that assumption and, and is wildly popular among Republicans like Trump, mm -hmm. like Ron Paul before that like, um, you know, some of these uh, more insurgent-minded people, your Matt Gaetzes, et cetera, your Tucker Carlsons. So we will see. Yeah, we will see. I keep checking. Um, the, the roll call vote started about four minutes ago, but we don't have any news about how this went for Jim Jordan this time around. Stick around, though. We will have more Rising for you right after this. My, my, how things have changed. They're now saying that RFK Jr.'s newly declared independent candidacy will actually help Joe Biden in the polls. A new survey reveals the commander-in-chief stands to benefit from a three-way standoff between Donald Trump, independent candidate RFK Jr., and Joe Biden. The NPR PBS NewsHour Marist National Poll shows that without RFK Jr. in the mix, Biden and Trump are well matched with the incumbent edging the ex-president by three percentage points among registered voters. But with RFK Jr. in the race, Biden will actually Trump top Trump by seven percentage points, 44 percent supporting Biden, 37 percent backing Trump, and 16 percent for Kennedy. But data on the impact RFK Jr. could have on Biden and Trump is mixed. According to 538 reporter Nathaniel Rakick, few polls testing such a three-way contest have been done, and those conducted 
Uh, the, and in those conducted, rather, the insurgent candidate appears to be siphoning votes from both, with Trump slightly leading Biden by 1.8 points in the national average. Per Rikic, sorry, completing data signals that ultimately RFK Jr. would take away votes from the Republican and Democratic candidate equally, ultimately having a small impact. So one thing to note there is that this is among likely voters. And some of the appeal of these insurgent candidates, including Trump back in the day, was that they turned out an unexpected number of people who hadn't gone to the polls before. So I am wondering if that militates in favor of RFK Jr. having even more of an impact, but taking less away from Biden or Trump, or if that is more of an indication that he will take from Trump, because he and Trump are both sharing this kind of unlikely voter pool. Conservative media figures are inarguably worried that an independent RFK Jr. candidate is going to hurt Trump more than Biden. Um, that's clear from how Sean Hannity and others are now treating RFK Jr. Um, they're kind of grilling him now when they have interviews. They're trying to call, out, um, call attention to his, his views on um, energy and regulations and things he said about uh, gun control in the distant past that he doesn't purport to believe anymore, things he said in the past that are totally anathema to conservatives in order to turn off the right from RFK Jr. So they perceive that he is a threat. I think the reality is, and, and it's correct to point out that this is just one poll, we don't have a lot of rigorous data on how RFK Jr. would affect the race from an independent candidate standpoint. I think the likelihood is he brings in people who were not going to vote for any other candidate. Who are going, some who are going to vote for Trump, some who are going to vote for Biden. This ends up being the case with third-party runs. This is often the case with the Libertarian Party candidate. Again, both parties say, you know, Democrats say this about the Greens. Republicans often say this about the Libertarians, that, you know, we own those votes. And if we didn't have to worry about this candidate, you know, we would pick up another 1, 2, 3 percent of the electorate. But you don't own those votes. Those are votes for that candidate. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those people support that candidate and that platform, and your perception that that platform is slightly closer or somewhat closer to the R or the D, that's just your view. A lot of those people were not going to vote for someone else, nor, nor should they, nor do they have to, nor are they forced to. You can vote for whoever you want. Your vote is not owed to someone else. So I really just cast aspersions on this entire, like if, if it is the case that RFK Jr. ends up hurting Trump a lot because some people prefer what RFK Jr. has said on a host of issues, including COVID. Let's, let's recall, mm -hmm. part of RFK Jr.'s condemnation of the establishment and the elites in both parties is that Trump as well, the Trump administration, empowered Dr. Fauci mm -hmm. to make uh, significant consequential decisions with respect to what the American COVID response would be. And a lot of people are dissatisfied with Trump for that reason. In fact, that's the subject in which he is most likely and most often booed at his own rallies, is for what he says about how he handled COVID. So he has to live with that. And if those people are voting for RFK Jr. instead, sorry, them's the breaks. Yeah, I'm looking at an article from the New York Times back in 2020 that notes that even in defeat, Trump found new voters across the country. Apparently, he picked up 10.1 million additional supporters with a noticeable jump in majority Hispanic areas. And so I think that's an interesting uh, cohort to watch. I haven't seen very many um, ethnic or really very many regional, frankly, breakdowns of where 
um, RFK Jr.'s audience is. So, for example, if the Democratic coalition tends to depend more on a base of black voters, women voters, and the like, and those people are less likely to flip to, for RFK, uh, to RFK Jr. for various reasons, then maybe that's part of why Biden might be less impacted than someone like Donald Trump. If RFK Jr. is already not having much of an impact in the Hispanic community or the black community or among women voters, you know, that will make a big difference. And the fact that abortion is such a key player here with Donald Trump, you know, being, frankly, it's hard, it's weird to say this, given that it was the Supreme Court, court report appointments that obviously overturned Roe, but he has been softer, shall we say, on the issue. Uh, he has had some awareness that being hardcore on abortion is not good politically as compared to some of his uh, cohort in the Republican Party. Still, compared to Biden and RFK Jr., he is the zealot in the group, and I do wonder For if that's sure. going to hurt him in, in the three-way race as well. Well, regarding RFK Jr.'s stance on Israel, writer Michael Tracy notes on X that RFK Jr. continues to boldly challenge foreign policy consensus, now by, according to Michael Tracy, bizarrely claiming that without Israel, China can blackmail the entire world. He says the U.S. has a critical existential strategic interest for being in Israel, which he insists is not an occupying force. So, uh, you wanted us, you wanted to yes. highlight this, you know, tell me more about. So Michael Tracy's obviously being sarcastic there, pointing to the fact that many people saw RFK Jr. as a kind of more isolationist, anti-war pro-peace candidate. But in some recent remarks, he opened them by saying, of course I'm pro-peace, everybody's pro-peace, but if your starting position is everybody's pro-peace, then that doesn't really speak to you distinguishing yourself <laughs> among a, a crowded field. Everyone is definitely not pro-peace. And I think statements like the ones he's made on Israel denying what at this point is just commonly accepted understanding of uh, um, uh, Israel being an apartheid state, of uh, Gaza being an occupied territory, a failure to acknowledge that, and also some of these uh, saber-rattling statements about China are increasingly indicating, I think, to voters that he is not necessarily who he represented himself as being as a peace candidate in the first instance. And oddly, the geopolitical realities that have emerged over the course of the last 10 days, I think, just don't bode very well for his campaign, because that really was what was drawing in a lot of support for him, especially on the left, I would say. The left was willing to overlook a lot of stuff um, if he were sincerely an anti-war candidate. And being progressive except for Palestine is just not the move it used to be maybe five or ten years ago. It's also not a move, frankly, that seems well tailored to me to bring in a lot of new people from the right, yeah. frankly, because there are—now, don't get me wrong. Uh, Don't—there are certainly people on the right for whom supporting Israel is extremely important. Mm -hmm. and, and for, you know, supporting Ukraine and supporting um, Taiwan against China, you know, for having a more hawkish and muscular foreign policy. Sometimes I—maybe it comes across like I'm entirely discounting their existence. They do exist. They're overrepresented in, in the leadership of the Republican Party. They're overrepresented on op-ed pages. They're overrepresented in cable news because they, for some reason, get to play the role of respectable conservative who participates in the discourse with the establishment liberals. Um, but they do exist. I don't think those people, those are, that, that's a really not gettable group of people, I think, for RFK Jr., frankly, because his heterodox opinions on other subjects, which I, many of them I, I admire and some of them I agree with, um, I think I would turn them off anyway. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't, I, <laughs> I suspect his views on the Israel-Palestine issue are just, are frankly just very sincere and is how he thinks about the matter. 
and is not part of some strategy to win some new group of people. And so it, it just is what it is. Well, it is interesting. I, I don't know. Um, I'm not going to weigh in on the sincerity, but notably, he just broke with his campaign manager, Dennis Kucinich, who, through his own long and highly respected career as a leftist, was known as someone who was very critical of Israel and the occupation of Palestine. So it did always seem like a bit of an uncomfortable fit. And the timing of this break does seem to speak well, who can say? But some people have read into it an ideological break over this particular issue. And I, some the, the closeness between RFK Jr. Um, and certain advocates um, from the Zionist community doing a lot of events with them, speaking in ways that are very much kind of APAC talking points, don't speak to a, a kind of organic support necessarily. It, fe it, felt, it feels kind of stiff and forced, to be honest, when you're listening to him say it. Not, not forced like he doesn't want to say it, but forced like it's not natural coming out of his mouth. Like he is reading remarks or reading opinions that he, he maybe very much believes, but that he didn't kind of come up with and generate and synthesize on his own. And so, you know, who knows what's going on there with him? It doesn't seem, if it is sincerely held, I really hope it's sincerely held because it would be horrible to lose a race because of an insincerely held opinion. Um, but I think a, a lot of eyes are going to be on exactly what happens with this campaign because the implications for the two major party candidates seem to be pretty significant. But I do appreciate that he's making the major party candidates sweat a little bit. Mm. I, just, I just like to see it because I hate that we end up with this binary choice between two unappealing figures that you know, most of the electorate wishes it was a choice. I mean, it's not confirmed yet what the choice is, but wishes it would be a choice other than Biden and Trump. Yeah. So to have those people have to work a little harder to win over um, uh, a group of voters that are that were de are desperately looking for something else to grasp onto is um, is I think a good exercise for democracy, frankly. Yeah. More rising right after this. users may have to get out their wallet because the social media platform, formerly known as Twitter, is now charging a $1 annual user fee to people in the Philippines and New Zealand. This is a test designed to limit spam and bot accounts on the site. If it's successful, perhaps it would be exported to other countries. The company confirmed yesterday this trial subscription fee only for new and unverified accounts and will not apply to existing users like me and Brianna, who <laughs> can't afford another, another single dollar. <laughs> All right. According to The Hill, it was unclear why at this time this only applies to New Zealand and the Philippines or how those countries were chosen. The ex-support account tweeted yesterday, this new test was developed to bolster our already successful efforts to reduce spam, manipulation of our platform, and bot activity while balancing platform accessibility with a small fee amount. It is not a profit driver. Okay, well, $1 for a year doesn't seem like much of a profit driver, although given the- For all the people losses, in New Zealand? Well, how many people in New... Yeah, right, that's what I'm there's saying. more sheep than many. people yeah. in New Zealand or whatever, right? So exactly. And <laughs> although this is a, I think that's, I think that's true. Um, but there's this is a pilot program, right? So the idea, if it went well here, it could go well uh, globally. And maybe, I mean, like a dollar for enough people 
if you add enough people up, it's a lot of dollars. But when you look at how much money Twitter has lost, lost from advertising, no, it's not going to make yeah. up the balance. It's not going to be a drop in the bucket. Now, do you think this is actually well calculated to eliminate bots if a dollar amount is really so low that maybe you will just pay the, pay the fee? Well, right. I mean, I, I think the logic is, you know, going through that, it takes five seconds, but slightly cumbersome process of like what registering a credit card information or PayPal mm -hmm. or what, however you're going to pay, that extra step maybe disarms the people or the whatever is creating bot accounts because that's just, it's just time consuming. It's, I mean, it's not time consuming for you if you're going to just do it once, but it takes time. I could also see it, you know, putting a slight hurdle into creating a new account could also just deter actual human beings. Um, right. I don't know. Obviously, if X becomes, you know, a more in-demand place or, you know, a place you want to spend significant time scrolling the feed, that's not very much of a deterrent to signing up. So I can sort of see the logic, yeah. but I don't know that it will work. Um, it, it looks like Elon Musk, you know, does want to move in the direction I mean, he's talked about making it a kind of subscription service overall. Mm -hmm. He's clearly very comfortable with the idea of charging the existing, even existing users um, for services on the platform. I don't think that's necessarily or totally wrong, but I think it needs to be very clear um, or ought to be clearer what the benefit is, what the policies are, because some of these changes just get announced, walk back, announced again. You know, we're now, we now no longer have headlines on photos, Ugh. which is a change that I have, I have yet to see a single person, even people who otherwise like Elon Musk, say has improved the user experience. It is, in fact, especially right now with mm -hmm. the war going on, it seems particularly, um, like I'm not, I'm not saying it's a conspiracy or something, or like they're trying to make information worse. It's just, it seems harder to tell what's going on. So for folks who don't know, the change that he made was that whereas previously if you put a link to an article and a tweet, it would populate as a an image usually but with the headline in there. So you could see what the title of the article was. Now it just populates with whatever photograph accompanies the article with no text whatsoever. So you can do a tweet that says something like, um, Elon Musk secretly collects stuffed animals and include an article that has a picture of Elon Musk, but there's no title. So it's not really clear if you're lying about Elon Musk and just made that up, or if it, you're, the article that you've clicked is actual evidence of the thing that you're saying. Yeah. And so it's making it so that you have to like screen grab the title of the article and put that in your tweet, or like type out, type, type it all out. And honestly, if his goal is for people to be able to get most of their information on the platform and in the newsfeed itself without having to click through to links, this seems this is totally counterproductive because you have to click through to see, what, to see what it actually about. says. Yeah. Whereas before you could, I mean, there's skim there's the misleading headlines sure. out there, but you could get a, a likely impression yeah. of of what the article is about. Yeah. So I don't I don't understand. That, that is the worst thing. I don't understand this change at all. But, but back to the the one dollar fee. It is true that if you do not pay the $1, you can still look at Twitter. Uh, Forbes reports, new users who opt out of the program will be limited to reading posts, watching videos, and following accounts as opposed to interacting through reposts, replies, and other features. And I do remember some statistic that showed that some very small percentage of Twitter users were responsible for the overwhelming majority of Twitter content. And that there are, yeah, that there are a lot of lurkers around. That basically it's like the 3% of journalists or whatever on Twitter are making all of the content. And most people never tweet a day in their lives. So are those people going to really be affected by this? Maybe not. 
Yeah, I used to tweet a lot more, and then uh, with all the kind of changes going on, my little check mark getting taken away, and with the deprioritization of news links in general, I just kind of stopped, and now, I don't know, I offer a thought every now and then, and I mostly just don't participate there anymore. Yeah, well, I, I also do think that if you're an individual running a bot farm, I think part of the story of, of some of the whether it's the K-Hive bot farm or the, the Brock, bot bar, bot, <laughs> Brock bot farm of the Hillary Clinton years, often these stories... Say that three times fast. <laughs> right? I think a lot of these stories that get really... Um, uh, the misinformation stories that get blown up by liberals, you look more closely and it turns out there were very few bots that made very few tweets and had very little effect. So I'm a little divided on that too. If it's such a big deal to have a small number of bots, well, that doesn't cost very much money. But if we're getting even into the, like, a thousand bot range, suddenly that is a little bit of a barrier mm -hmm. to entry to actually doing it on an individual level. So maybe there is a, a, a there there. It would be great to grapple with and correct this problem because I am noticing lately that I think a higher proportion of my new followers on Twitter are accounts that I can readily identify as bots, as fake, you know, they did that they don't have, that they were newly created and don't have any posts or are spammy or are even pornographic. Or um, all their posts are about one specific topic. Yeah, so it's, uh, it is a problem and uh, it doesn't seem to be getting better. So yeah. we'll see if this is a solution or yeah. not. If it expands beyond uh, for the Philippines and the handful of people in New Zealand. Other than just the sheep. <laughs> just the, the sheep. sheep. <laughs> More rising right after this. Egyptian comedian and television host Bassem Youssef appeared on Piers Morgan's program last night where he expressed what he would tell Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu if he were Israeli. Let's watch. Those people went in and they went for six hours before IDF forces was deployed, killing our friends, our families, kidnapping our grandmothers and babies, and went in. I want to ask you, Mr. Prime Minister, after you have fractured the Israeli community and you have our courts, our Supreme Courts, what are you doing with the money being given to you to the United States? Also, you are carpet bombing Gaza with absolutely no regard to our hostages. Again, Yusuf is not Israeli in his hypothetical lecture. However, he continued blasting Netanyahu over the Israel and Hamas war. Take a look. How come our Israeli government is trading human lives for another piece of land? So as an Israeli citizen, I need to hold my Israeli government accountable. If I was Joe Biden, I would go down and whisper in the ears of Netanyahu and tell them I hate bad investments. They haunt me, you know, like Littlefinger in Game of Thrones. But the thing is, the thing is, this is the problem. Israel always victimizes itself, and I have never seen a victim putting their oppressor under siege and bombing them 24-7. So he goes on to say there uh, that uh, Israel paints itself as Superman, but it's really Homelander. He's a comedian and satirist, and with those short clips that we played, it's hard to get a sense of the kind of satirical nature of this clip. But it went mega viral last night. It already has uh, over 6 million views. It wasn't even posted 24 hours ago. And I think the reason why it was so compelling to a lot of folks is that, I mean, rarely do we see humor applied to a situation as serious as this. And he was prepared to basically 
in a comedic way, concede a lot of the arguments that are made by people who defend the broader uh, uh, project of occupation, saying, look, uh, I, I would call my wife, um, I would call her, but she's mad at me from the last time I used her as a human shield, you know, just kind of embracing some of the stereotypes and putting a very human face on what allegations are made of uh, Palestinians and the implications about how they don't value life. And it, 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 I think it went viral, because it, it was, I think, a really cogent expression of a lot of sentiments and a lot of resentment and a lot of frustration Palestinians have been having, but rarely get an opportunity to express on a mainstream platform like that. I think we have a little bit more from that interview. Let's watch. It's uh, great to have you back on the program. I wish it was under different circumstances. Um, first of all, what is your reaction to what happened on October the 7th? Oh, it was terrible, of course. I mean, we kind of get our news kind of also secondhand because, you know, my, my wife's family, they live in Gaza. They actually have uh, cousins and uncles there. Um, and uh, their house also was bombed. We haven't been able to communicate with them for the past three days. Communication are lost. So uh, we don't know actually what is the, uh, how is the, how are they doing? But, you know, we're used to that. I mean, it's, it's just like, it's, it's, it's very repetitive. We're used to that. We're used to them being bombed every time and moving from one place to the other. Uh, you know, it's just like those Palestinians, they're very dramatic. Ah, Israel killing us. Uh, but they never die. I mean, they always come back. You know, they're, they're very difficult to kill, very difficult people to kill. I, I know because I'm married to one. Mm. I tried many times, couldn't kill her. I mean, there's a dark humor there, and I understand why. Because oh, it's not dark humor. I really, I try to get to her every time, but she uses our kids as human shields. I can never take her out. <laughs> so obviously, it's a very, very dark humor. I think that one of the more poignant um, parts of the discussion, which went on, I think, for about 30 minutes, uh, and people should check out the, the whole segment in full, was that he had a printout of a chart that um, I believe was originally from the New York Times, which has been circulating a lot, which shows a calculation of both Israeli and Palestinian um, casualty numbers dating back, I think, um, about 10 years. I think it's like 2008 to 2020. It's, it's an older chart. Obviously, it hasn't been updated for this current crisis. Um, but even if it did have numbers for this year, they would reflect the general trend, which is that uh, Palestinian deaths are wildly disproportionately outnumber um, Israeli deaths. And the point that he makes about that is not obviously that the Israeli deaths don't matter because there are many fewer than the Palestinian deaths, but to ask the question about whether or not this belief that so many people seem to have bought into, that a retaliation for the horrific events of October 7th, that is wildly disproportionate, that kills many multiple times more Palestinian civilians than Israeli civilians died. At this point, it's about two to one, the ratio of Palestinians dead now um, from uh, Israelis that were killed on uh, October 7th. Does that ever have the effect of stopping Hamas, of ending the fighting, of bringing peace? And if you look at that chart, the evidence would suggest no. But so many people in the media sphere and the pundit sphere and beyond, oh, here's the, the, we have that chart here, seem to be arguing that 
Israel has an unlimited right, that part of its defense of itself means continuing airstrikes that are killing a very small number of people who are in Hamas and a very large number of civilians. Well, I mean, even the U.S. government has not taken the position, right, that uh, the Israeli government has an unlimited— um, Well, they have. Exactly. Well, they no, did. Joe they, Biden has— Well, now he's walked it back, right? But that okay. was part of the frustration that in the days following the attack, we gave unqualified support for Israel's retaliation. And that means that the, con the blood is also on the hands of the American government, which, which is one of the few governments in the world who had the power to influence uh, Israel to uh, uh, exercise some restraint. There was just an article, I think we're going to talk about it in another segment, about uh, a Huffington Post piece reporting on people in the Biden administration who don't feel comfortable expressing any desire for restraint or saying anything that reflects any sympathies with the humanitarian plight of the Palestinian people. There was that memo that went around that asked, um, that said that you can use a revert, a word ceasefire and a number of other kind of peace-oriented words in any internal documents. Uh, so obviously there is a culture, and, and especially in the week or so after the attack, a culture of basically giving Israel the space to do whatever it wanted to do. And what we've seen is that means is killing a lot of civilians. And so uh, Basim here was asking whether or not that is well calculated to having the effect of actually bringing peace or ending Hamas. Yeah, I mean, I just, I don't think it's entirely fair to say, not, not that I'm one to stick up for Joe Biden, but he is in, I mean, in his comments and in what he suggests he's saying to Netanyahu privately, he's urging some degree of restraint. He's calling for humanitarian assistance to be um, to be supplied. Um, you know, it should be more. And again, I would not provide the military support to Israel if I was in charge of the policy. He's doing that, which, as you said, does um, lend itself toward blowback against the American people if Islamic extremists all over the globe see the U.S. as the primary funder and backer of what Israel is doing in Gaza. I don't want the Islamic world to see it like that, which is why I think it is very dangerous and reckless for U.S. security to be involved in that. But as far as I can tell, it, it would be better for the Israeli government to have some restraining forces, and it seems like we're serving as one in some capacity. So let me just to, to specify what I was referencing. Um, the Huffington Post reported that it had reviewed emails—this is, I think, over last week and last Friday—that uh, official emails that said that, quote, State Department staff wrote that high-level officials do not want press materials to include three specific phrases—de-escalation, ceasefire, into violence, bloodshed, and restoring calm. They didn't want people to even say, we want to end the bloodshed and restore calm. That was from the State Department. Um, there was uh, additionally uh, this article that a lot of people were making fun of. I think I brought it up before. Um, uh, two days ago, uh, called uh, Israeli allies have been reluctant to use the R word. People were joking about what that R word could possibly be. It was restraint because until probably the last couple of 24, 48 hours or so, any indication that you thought that Israel should mod moderate its response at all was described as—was uh, was responded to, rather, with the claim, well, you don't want Israel to have the right to defend itself. Doesn't Israel have the right to defend itself? And that—built into that was the presumption that there's no limit to that defense. Um, and you had, you know, various politicians, as we've discussed, saying they wanted to raise uh, Gaza to the ground. And there wasn't a moderating force on that until, I think, there were all these protest movements around the world and in the United States of America that were supportive of Palestine. And eventually, finally, we got some moderation out of the, the White House. But is that too late? 
Uh, look at how much damage has been done. I don't, pers I don't like the phrase, Israel has a right to defend itself, because I'm hesitant to ascribe rights to governments or to states or to countries in general. I think it would be better phrased as the Israeli people have the right to defend themselves, or, or people who are uh, attacked in an unprovoked manner, who are not combatants, who are civilians and innocents, have the right not to be gunned down in their homes or at music festivals, that kind of thing. I think a little bit of specificity helps, because obviously it, the state, if the state has the right to defend itself, well, a state could feel provoked or encroached upon for any number of reasons that then lend themselves to an overreaction or retaliatory I mean, that's, that's interesting, because the implications of that are some, some people like uh, Palestinians who have been denied statehood at, least, statehood, at least in the eyes of our government, and who do rely on groups like Hamas, who are characterized by our government as terrorist groups, to defend what they see to be the interests of their people. It seems like in that framing, they have even more legitimacy. To no, because they're targeting innocent people indiscriminately. Well, I mean, the argument here is that Israel is also, whether they're targeting or not, killing volumes more innocent people. Um, I think a third of the 3,000 lives that have been lost on the Palestinian side of things now are children. And if it's just individual human beings making the decision about what they need to do to defend the interest of themselves or their communities, then we get into this situation where I think actually the morality of what's going on here is even more blurry uh, than it already is. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not interested in getting into a debate about the particular phrasing, Israel has a right to defend itself here. I do have an episode of my podcast coming out tomorrow where I talk to a former, uh, an, an Israeli, uh, former, uh, uh, he was formerly in the army, obviously, everybody has to. His dad was a general and his grandfather was a signatory of the uh, Israeli Declaration of Independence. He was very much brought up as an Israeli, proud, never questioned any of the things that was told about the relationship between Palestinians uh, and Israelis, and then had a change of heart after a tragic family event where his niece was actually killed by a uh, Palestinian suicide bomber, and that caused him to think harder about what was actually going on for the people of Palestine. And he does want to have that debate. He very much brings that question to the foreground on my episode. If people want to check that out tomorrow, I am still um, resolving how I feel about that, but it was a really interesting kind of thought experiment about how much that particular phrase does in terms of work to kind of validate some of what might be described as overreach on the part of the Israeli government. We'll have more rising right after this. This just in, President Biden announced an agreement to allow humanitarian aid to move from Egypt to Gaza and confirmed $100 million in U.S. funding for assistance to civilians in Gaza and also the West Bank, according to The Hill. While speaking in Tel Aviv as part of a trip to Israel in the wake of terrorist attacks carried out by Hamas, Biden said he asked the Israeli cabinet during a meeting to agree to the delivery of humanitarian assistance to civilians in Gaza, quote, based on understanding that there will be inspections and aid should go to civilians, not to Hamas. Let's watch some of that. The people of Gaza need food, water, medicine, shelter. Today I asked the Israeli cabinet, who I met with for some time this morning, to agree to the delivery of life-saving humanitarian assistance to civilians in Gaza, based on the understanding that there will be inspections and that the aid should go to civilians, not to Hamas. Israel agreed the humanitarian assistance 
can begin to move from Egypt to Gaza. But let me be clear. <clears throat> if Hamas diverts or steals the assistance, they will have demonstrated once again that they have no concern for the welfare of the Palestinian people. And it will end. <clears throat> As a practical matter, it will, it will stop the international community from being able to provide this aid. Meanwhile, a senior Hamas leader has told NBC News that the group is willing to release all civilian hostages, foreigners and Israelis, if the strikes on Gaza stop. Israeli forces say some 200 people were kidnapped and are currently being held by Hamas as part of last week's terror attacks. This is all happening as anti-Israel protests are erupting in Lebanon, Iraq, Jordan, Iran, Turkey, and in Ramallah in the West Bank, following the blast at El Ahalti Baptist Hospital in Gaza that killed hundreds of people. Um, obviously, there's been a lot of new news about what the extent of the damage was there and obviously who perpetrated uh, that attack as well that we covered in an another segment. You should go check that out in more detail. Yeah, and, and the Wall Street Journal has subsequent reporting I just read through um, their uh, post on the, the U.S. intelligence officials now being quite certain, having high confidence that uh, the blast at the hospital um, was from uh, a pal the, the not the Hamas group, but the other Palestinian uh, terror group. There is a lot of skepticism in this Wall Street Journal report that um, hundreds of people would have um, suffered death as a result of this specific explosion. We don't know. That figure comes only from the, um, the Gaza Health Ministry, so it's just totally unconfirmed either way. But the Wall Street Journal report uh, makes it sound like primarily the explosion was was the parking lot and that there was not major structural damage to the surrounding buildings. That's just one report. Again, we don't know yet. We're waiting for more information. Um, so I'd love to talk about this story yes. about the humanitarian aid, because up until this point, the sticking point with humanitarian aid, remember Anthony Blinken was in this seven and a half hour meeting earlier this week, where the conclusion was there should be aid, but uh, the, the problem, one of the large problems has been that Israel has bombed the Rafah gate, um, which is the gate to Egypt through which the aid is supposed to come, and there's low confidence that people who are using those thoroughfares are going to actually be safe. At the same time that this is all happening, just now this morning, um, the U.N. voted on a Security Council resolution to call for a ceasefire, which was vetoed by the United States of America. Now, there's a couple of reasons why this could have been vetoed, including that there were some Russian amendments that were calling for an immediate, durable and full ceasefire and to stop attacks against civilians. And there has been a pattern of vetoing and reject re rejection resolutions when Russia is involved, but the explicit reason that U.S. Ambassador Lindsey Thomas-Greenfield uh, raised was that, quote, this resolution did not mention Israel's right of self-defense. Mm. So no ceasefire. At the same time that we're saying you need to—we're going to have an allowance for humanitarian aid, the U.N., because of America's veto, is giving us a somewhat different message. And I do wonder how that's all going to— play out, since we do have now a history over the past 10 days or so of Israel saying people can evacuate during along a certain route and then bombing it, saying that people should go to southern Gaza to be safe. There was reporting of bombing there last night, uh, IDF bombing last night, and then also this controversy around the Rafa gate. Mm. Uh, in terms of the offer to release the hostages mm. if bombing were to cease, I think obviously in a vacuum that would be terrific. That's the yeah. aim we want. We don't want Palestinian civilians to be suffering death as a result of these bombings. We want the hostages to be released. Unfortunately, there's many problems with this, one being that 
Hamas does not even is not even in possession of all the hostages right now is is what I'm I'm reading it's being reported that some of them were were grabbed opportunistically by um, Palestinians who are not directly under officially under the Hamas leadership chain uh, chain Hamas is apparently still trying to figure out exactly where each and all of the hostages are being kept at the same time that obviously from the organization standpoint they're trying to prevent stop themselves from being blown apart by uh, by Israel airstrikes. So the idea that they could just, you know, release all the hostages at once is probably not true anyway. Um, well, also, I, frankly, they're not going to—I um, I think Hamas does not—would not believe that the airstrikes on Gaza would not simply resume after the hostages were released. So they're probably unlikely to follow through on that anyway due to a— not, uh, due to a lack of trust in the Israeli side, there's, there's that, a lack of trust wait in a minute, both Robert, You're just describing the nature of any kind of hostage situation or handoff. Give me the money, bag of money, and I'll give you the purse. I mean, like any at any point, yeah. the risk is always that someone's going to renege on their side of the deal. That's not anything unique to this particular I didn't say it was situation. Unique to the situation. But, that's... but the, the reality is that Hamas is apparently offered to release hostages in their possession if there is a ceasefire. There is a ceasefire. Well, they being... said all the hostages. They don't even have all the hostages, so. Yeah, I just said all the hostages in their possession. Did I? Didn't I? I think they said all of the hostages. Right, but I just said. Okay. I just said all the hostages in their possession. So even if they don't have all the hostages, if they have two hostages, I'm sure that's two families that would be very interested in what it would mean to try to negotiate around getting their loved ones back, if there is some kind of a ceasefire, even if it's temporary in nature. And given that there are simultaneously humanitarian calls for a ceasefire, including in the U.N. Security Council, it does seem like there is an alliance of interest where maybe Israel will be doing this anyway because it has rained retribution down on Gaza. It has killed twice as many people as were killed on October 7th. One might anticipate that at a certain point this has to end or should end, that an eye for an eye—it's been an eye for—you know, two eyes for an eye. Um, and that if you can also, on top of that, get back all of these hostages who I'm sure are terrified, injured, living in a situation where there is not water, limited food resources, no medical supplies that have been, been able to get into to Gaza. And they were working with very limited medical supplies even yeah. before uh, October 7th because of the blockades. You know, they want to get their family members out there. Every day that goes by could be a day that a hostage dies, not because they were even killed, but because they were injured in the capture and aren't getting medical attention. Well, and, so and I fact, hope this is being taken seriously. The, the one hostage video oh, that the was released, woman. the woman, she yeah. was in horrible shape. She was grievously, uh, a grievous injury. Do you think they're injury. having pain meds for her? Yeah, do you think that, uh, you know, it's... Torture. So I, I really do hope the American government is taking it seriously, but I will say that the UN, vetoing this UN Security Council to have a ceasefire does suggest to me that right. that is in some ways off the table, at least in the form that it was presented uh, to the UN. Yes, they should, both government, the US and Israeli government should prioritize um, having the hostages freed, rescued, or released by whatever means. And the, the goal should be to bring an end to this bombing that is creating tons of civilian casualties on the Palestinian side, which will, again, breed further um, conflict down the line. There will, be a, there will be a rallying around the terrorist Islamic extremists due to the, due to the Palestinian lives that are being lost. So it, it's just going to get itself into—it's already in a retaliatory cycle, but it will—at some point, someone needs to yeah. come to some arrangement—both sides need to come to an arrangement and stand down for the—so that we can preserve 
innocent human life moving yeah. forward. It's also, I'm sorry, it's not like the Palestinians are going anywhere. The, the thing about an open-air prison in a, in a walled community is that the second that Israel, if it changed its mind, if it felt like a deal had been reneged upon, that there's nothing stopping it from endlessly bombing ga uh, ga ga people, the people of Gaza. Gazans have been bombed throughout um, for years, uh, routinely, multiple times, um, per periodically over the course of the year, even before this crisis. So it does, it does feel like there's a lot of upside here for Israel and very little downside. So I don't know. We'll continue to follow this and see how it plays out. Please do stick around. We have a lot more rising for you after this. Crimea River, Britney Spears' ex excerpt from her new memoir reveals a bombshell about her past with superstar crooner Justin Timberlake. In her upcoming memoir, The Woman in Me, the pop icon reveals that when she famously dated Timberlake, she became pregnant with his baby but had an abortion, People Magazine confirms. Quote, she said, it was a surprise, but for me, it wasn't a tragedy. I love Justin so much. I always expected us to have a family together one day. This would just be much earlier than I'd anticipated. Spears, who's now 41, writes of the pregnancy in the book. She goes on, but Justin definitely wasn't happy about the pregnancy. He said we weren't ready to have a baby in our lives, that we were way too young. A rep for Timberlake did not immediately respond to the to People Magazine's request for comment. Um, and I, I think elsewhere, uh, there's been all this speculation now because a one of the songs that she came out with afterward um, has imagery in it of at the very end of a woman giving birth uh, in a hospital. And the lyrics to that song, which were previously interpreted to be about Justin Timberlake, are now being reinterpreted by a lot of the fan base uh, to perhaps be about um, her regrets, or not regrets, but her, her struggle with the feelings around um, her choice to have an abortion. So the lyrics include, I may have made it rain, please forgive me, my weakness cause you pain, and this song's my sorry. Right, people thought uh, that that was about speculation that she may have um, been unfaithful to uh, Justin Timberlake, that that's what the lyrics were referencing. And that's something that he had said at the time. Yes, made now it, we're hearing, at the time. Uh, it sounds to me like this book tackles um, allegations the other way, that he had cheated on her. Um, obviously, both could be accurate or both could be inaccurate. Um, you know, there's been, I think, a lot of uh, renewed public interest in Britney Spears as a person, given yeah. this very, you know, pub very public struggle she had to reclaim, like, ownership of her body, you know, being in that situation where I, her father had um, undue control over, actually, of, like, her reproductive situation. Um, you know, Britney Spears is a kind of figure from our childhood, you, uh, you and me, Brianna, our mm -hmm. era, where, where her and Justin were such just giant stars, probably, you know, the kids these days, the Gen Z kids could, can't <laughs> relate to or understand how beloved or important these figures were to yeah. us and our classmates, had, you know, their posters all over our walls and such things. I remember wondering, even at the time, though, whether, you know, Britney and Justin being together was kind of a like a publicity, publicity stunt, some kind of opportunity, you know, how much they did, if they really actually did even care for each other or if it was for attention. And she, it seems like she writes in this book that it really was a sincere um, relationship, at least on, on her end, that she really did love him, that she wanted to have a family with him eventually, um, and how hard it was to break up. 
Yeah, I mean, so part of what colors this as well is that Justin Timberlake came out with the Crimea River video shortly after their breakup, and in it has a woman that is clearly intended to look like Britney Spears um, uh, walking around his in a cheating scenario. The woman in the video is cheating on Justin Timberlake in the video, and the very strong implication was that Britney Spears was responsible for the breakup because of infidelity. And if that turns out not to only not be true, but that he was suggestively putting that out there in video uh, format at the same time that Britney Spears not only regretted the breakup, but didn't, but wanted to have a whole family with him and felt some pressure to get an abortion, that doesn't reflect very well on Justin Timberlake, if true. Sure. Now, it's, you know, this is one side of a relationship dispute from 20 years ago. You know, take it with a grain of salt. She has she has a book she's promoting. It's all, I think it's already a, a bestseller from pre-orders and everything. She has some incentive to discuss the relationship in this way. There's usually a lot of mutual hurt in relationships that go badly. You know, I don't want this is not like radically altering my perception of Justin Timberlake just based on this. Well, I think that's true but... for a lot of people, largely because the other <laughs> the other thing about Justin Timberlake is a lot. A lot of people are, were very upset with him after the Super Bowl performance with Janet Jackson, where the perception was that, I'm sure people, you remember, but for people who were younger and weren't around, at the end of their performance, Justin Timberlake ripped open a part of Janet Jackson's clothing and her breast became revealed. Um, she got hit with all of these uh, fines uh, for nudity in front of the biggest audience in America, and it really hurt her career. She was... People... It's hard to imagine that this would be a big deal today. Yeah. The people at the time were like, the, the Fox News host were like, oh my God, it's the end of decorum in America. And everyone was acting like she had just dropped a bomb on the Super Bowl. It was Not crazy. everyone. I thought it was insane. It wasn't her fault. It wasn't either of their fault. It, it was yeah. the war people thought Whoa. wardrobe malfunction was to a totally incredulous explanation. So that was that was where that phrase came from. Yes. It was invented to talk about that particular incident. Which is what happened. Well, there there's two narratives. One narrative is that Justin Timberlake was supposed to rip a piece of clothing, but not the entire, not to expose the, the breast, to have some kind of mesh or well, something don't, that comes. Don't jet fuel can't melt steel beams me here, <laughs> Brianna. <laughs> this, 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 is, this is what happened. So it was either that he did, he was supposed to rip it, but it wasn't supposed to expose the breast. And the question is whether or not it was an actual malfunction or if he was more, you know, he intentionally exposed her to get publicity at her expense. And of course, there's no evidence for that, but people's, some people's belief that that happened has tarnished him in the public eye. On top of that, even if it wasn't intentional, I do think that people are frustrated. It's not his fault, obviously, but frustrated that his career showed, you know, suffered no consequences, and Janet Jackson's career. It did. was wrong for. It would have been wrong for either of them. You're right to suffer any career consequence. It was just. It was stupid. It didn't matter. Didn't matter. I, I, I agree on that one. So I did see some people doing some wow. joke tweets like, oh, I can't believe that. Justin Timberlake ruined two two big pop stars' careers. When was that? <laughs> oh, I, um, I don't know. Early aughts. I'm looking it up. Did I hear the control room say 2007? Um, it feels about right. Might have been that. Senior year. Super Bowl, third, it was, um, no, 2004. 2004. Wow. Freshman yeah, year. Yeah, that was. Uh... Yeah. Uh, so that that is just general color and backdrop. Of course, both um, Britney Spears went on uh, to have two kids with Kevin Federline, who are in their late teens now. Who was her second husband. Mm-hmm. And Justin Timberlake has been married yeah. to Jessica Biel for years kids. now, and they have, do they have multiples? 
I think they have two kids. Okay, yeah. so they're. You and know, Brittany so was subsequently divorced from Kevin Federline, and then, and I think she's recently the relationship she's had going on. I think came to an end. Yeah, too, with the uh, with the. I, I'm not sure. It was with a bodyguard, right? I'm not sure. Sam yes, Asgari. Sam Asgari. I think that has ended. Um, yeah, so yes. I, I think this Producers is raising, are saying it's over. This is raising some interesting questions about, you know, if this were not famous people, there would not be interest. Right. And I would say anybody who wasn't famous, of course, is well on their rights to talk about what happened to them in their lives and from, to do it from their view of things. There's this interesting dynamic that emerges when people are famous and when the partner is famous. And, you know, it invites the public to weigh in in this way on behaviors that folks did when they were kids, when they were right. very young. It's not behaviors necessarily Behaviors that they're fair. guilty of, too. I, like, I, I feel bad, for honestly, for very famous people who are subject to this level of scrutiny, yeah. um, trying to be real people and experience human moments in their relationships with their families. It must be... It must be really yeah. tough. I mean, it, it's very clear the publicity has been tough, has been hard, particularly on Brittany. Um, right. So over the that years. makes me very sympathetic to yeah. her to be able to tell her story. Um, and this is obviously a big part of it. She said, uh, This is one of the most agonizing things I've ever experienced in my life uh, of this interlude with Justin Timberlake and the abortion. But also, it, there is this weirdness about. The, the broad public casting aspersions on a 40-something-year-old ma married man with two kids yeah. based on what in the ideal world would be private behavior. So I'm a, li I'm a little torn For on sure. this sure. I wish we could afford more privacy to everyone, even celebrities. But yeah. here we are. Well, that does it for us for today. Tomorrow, we'll be back here with more news. And if you haven't heard, we're bringing back an old tradition of answering your questions in the form of rising AMA. Ask us anything in the comments, and we'll answer as many of those questions as we can. That segment airs right here on YouTube on Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.